The Sports Career Podcast, episode 313. How can self-coaching support your sports career development? Achiever, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Sports Crib Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who's an expert in a particular sector in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in high performance and coaching. I hope today's episode can be useful to you with regards to your sports career development, interests, and needs. Now, getting back to today's podcast special guest is a returning guest of the show, Martin Robert Hall. Martin is an award-winning coach, author, and has over 15 years of experience working in elite sports and business, where he specialises in leadership, mindset, and high performance, supporting individuals and teams. For that reason, it's such a pleasure to have Martin back on the show, and that's when today's episode, Martin will share his sports career journey and explain to you how self-coaching can support your sports career development today. Martin, it's such a joy to have you back on the Sports Crib Podcast. Now, to put it in perspective, everybody, I had Martin back in 2016, episode 10. And there's a little fun story of how we got connected, which we'll touch on in this podcast. But before we start, Martin, for the listeners who didn't listen to your first episode, which was, by the way, for listeners listening in, because it will help you how to create your own career path in the sports industry. Can you just share to listeners a little bit about you, Martin? But I highly recommend everybody to check out the first episode because it's still relevant to today. But Martin, welcome back. Thanks, Ed. It's um, it's a pleasure to be back. It's amazing, actually, that we are... This year will be coming up seven years, I think, since we had our first conversation, which is incredible. You know, um, that time has, has flown by. My life's changed somewhat. Two children in that space of time, lots of change. Um and and two more books since then as well in terms of my career. But if I go back to the very beginning for the benefit of the listeners, my career started, well, I, I guess you could say it started early, in, in my early years of school, playing a lot of sport. I was always fascinated with sport. I was always really interested in why some people made it to the top in sport. Some people seem to really fulfill the talent and other people who were maybe even more talented didn't and that I think those questions were going through my mind during high school um and then I, I studied sports science at college and became fascinated with sports psychology and then that led me to then going to study at degree level again specializing in sports psychology for my degree and then upon leaving my degree wanting you know the career path I wanted to pursue was a sports psychologist but I was you know the the advice at the time from the careers advisor was that it was going to be a very difficult path and you know it was there's an awful lot of people that tried to go down that path there wasn't as many opportunities but I didn't want to just continue studying I didn't want at that point in my life 
21, I wanted to travel. I wanted to go and get some what I would class as real world experience, working in different industry, traveling the world, meeting different people from different backgrounds. And I didn't want to stay on and do a master's and a PhD and just sort of pursue that, you know, lengthy like study path. I just, it wasn't for me at the time. Um, and I went and did that and got all of that experience, but it, it circled back where what I found is that the industries I was going to work in, a lot of the principles that I'd learned from sports psychology and just my own personal development, my own reading and learning all came back to this point of how important psychology, communication, the soft skills, mindset, attitude, how important those things were in your career and how I'd seen them, not just related to sports, but also in every business industry I'd worked in, how important and fundamental they were. And so that led me then to starting my own business and teaching the, the things that I'd learned. We're going to touch on a lot more detail because the one thing I've learned with reading two of your books is how you specialized in coaching and how you invested in yourself and developing yourself. So you use the psychological tools. I've used my studies. I did a few psychology modules at university and you're spot on. It's amazing how psychology can influence the way we communicate, not just how what we say. It's more our body language, which I'm learning even throughout my personal development. But going back, I always say this to you know, podcast special guests who come back on the show. And this is a big one for you because it's been a while. But reflecting from when we last spoke, I mean, in the last podcast chat, one what one skill would you say you've developed looking back now with regards to your own career development? I'm just curious. You know, that's it's a, like you say, that is because it's a nearly a seven year period. I think I'm always what one of the thing the skills that I built early on when which is quite interesting. And you mentioned the coaching and this has been fundamental to my career progression. I would say is learning the coaching was about me helping other people. It was helping them to get from where they are to where they want to be. But in that process of doing that, what I actually learned was to coach myself. And I would say that is the number one skill that I've developed because over that period of time, you know, like like everybody, not just in your career, but in your life, you're going to face challenges. There's going to be, you know, periods which are harder than others. And having that ability to self-coach, developing actually that the ability to do it, because it's just been a practice. In the beginning, I couldn't do it for myself. I couldn't do it for others. I've really sharpened that skill. So now... Um, you know, I'm able to do that quite quickly when I find myself in certain situations. So that's been, I would say, that's probably been my number one consistent skill. And it's filtered into all of the other skills. You know, I'd say I've got better as a writer, better as a communicator, but, you know, presenting ideas, coaching other people, coaching groups or individuals. But underpinning all of that is the ability to coach myself along the way to learn the lessons and to then apply the lessons for myself. Can we dig deep on this you know coaching yourself because we're in a world now things are a lot different when we had our first conversation like podcasts were new youtube is just a massive machine of learning and we're in this such a knowledge world where there's too much information and i'm just curious when i speak to you now you're a lot calmer a lot more controlled in how you communicate a lot more slower meaning uh controlled of what you're saying and how effective you're saying it 
But I'm just curious, when you coach yourself, it isn't just listen to podcasts, that it goes from one ear, comes out the other. Does that mean you've done exercises to really improve certain elements by putting it into practice? I just want to dig deeper what you mean coaching yourself it, it, in a more practical sense. I'm just curious, and I think it will help the listeners too. You know, it's a great question that I, I, I like to get into the nuts and bolts of things so people can understand it. When I say coaching myself, I absolutely don't mean reading books or listening to podcasts. That That's great. And that's built so much of the foundation of my knowledge, building those habits. But coaching myself is simply listening to myself, asking myself questions. And actually, I'll do this down on paper. I'll, do, you know, I will either write the, the questions out on paper and, and brainstorm, or I'll do it just on, you know, an empty word uh, document on my laptop where I'm actually asking myself questions and then reflecting on them, listening to my own intuition. Or sometimes it might be, I might be out going for a walk and I'm thinking about something. And that thinking is a process of asking yourself questions and then coming up with the answers and listening to what I truly think and allowing the time for those thoughts to crystallize. And in doing that, you get to know yourself better, understand yourself and process things in a way which gives you more clarity. So that's what I mean by self-coaching. And I'm just going to go in a bit deeper of how we got connected because it relates to a topic and you said the word a few times the power of asking effective questions. Now, I'm going to hold the mic a bit and, yeah, enjoy your cup of tea. We got connected at a – this was my – This is be, I'm being truthful over. This is when I just started my career. I saw a networking event in Manchester. It was rugby-related. I had Mark Cueto. And I went, I, I'm just going to invest in myself, show up. And it got me out of my comfort zone. When I got there, I met up with Martin, and there was probably about 25 of us. But let's be honest, a lot of people in that room – wanted to hear, learn from Mark Cueto of the stories in the change room. It was more of, should we say, the banter side of the rugby. Like, they weren't there for business. But when we were there, honestly, Martin was the only one asking effective questions to, you know, Mark Cueto of what he really learned. I try to do the same because I want to be the best, you know, as I can be. And that is how we got connected. I have to say, I don't know if you agree, if you remember this, but we were probably the only two who are really keen to thrive and learn from Mark, not just what goes on in the rugby world. But going back to my question, you know, out of interest, how has intelligent questions supported you in different environments, like that networking event, but also with the clients you work with? I'm just curious because even your books, by the way, everything starts with a question which then leads to the result in what we're trying to achieve. If it's, we'll talk about it, but it could be optimism in your first book. But I just want the listeners to understand if you ask effective questions, you're going to get more effective answers to your growth. So Martin, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Remember that networking event, how we got connected, but also how has asking questions influenced your growth in general? Well, yeah, I think you're right. You know, we connected for that reason, we were both curious. And I always think that the beginning of all learning starts from a curiosity. And if you're curious, that causes you to think in a certain way where you are pondering questions. Then going from pondering the question, which I'm sure many people have, to actually asking the question. Sometimes that can be the challenge, taking the thought to action, you know, which I do a lot of work with my clients around. But then 
it de- the questions you ask are also determined by what is it you're looking for in the first place? What's your reason? What are you there for? What do you want to learn? You know, is it, like you say, is it just for some fun and playful side of, of listening about someone's career? Or are you there to learn for something that's going to help you to grow and develop in your own? So I think, you know, and then in terms of the importance of asking intelligent questions in my role, my profession, well, that's a largely a big part of what I do and what my clients pay me to do. But to do that correctly, to do that effectively, to add value with those questions, what I've found is my questions have got better with experience, with my knowledge, but then also with my ability to listen. And the more you listen, the better the question you can ask. And so as a combination of all of those things that, you know, being exposed to more environments, having more experience, uh, experiences of asking certain questions and getting certain responses and you know hundreds and thousands of of those types of scenarios over time that sharpens your knowledge and ability to do so and again it reinforces some of those basic principles of practice i thought you know when i started my career i was impatient and to a degree i self-coached myself around that patience now it's a continuous thing i have to do because that's more inherent in me but I thought I was going to go from X, you know, A to B, say, in a short space of time, when in fact it might have took me 10 years instead of the two years I wanted it to happen. And so now, 14 years later in my career, I can see that actually, you know, those fundamentals take a long time to sharpen. And I think that's something that's really relevant to today as well, because like you say, the world has evolved since we last spoke, seven years nearly social media, the speed at which things, you know, the expectations of people of of which they want things to happen has just all sped up because of the world and how quick things are now. But actually, I found all these fundamentals and important building blocks for anyone's career, they take a long time and often they take longer than you would like them to take. I want to touch on the patience bit, like reflecting what have been the biggest learning lessons of being patient, like the wins you thought, you know, like you just said, we expect so much in two years, but it may take 10 or longer. But when you have been patient, has it led to more fulfilling experiences reflecting? I know it's a bit of a big question to ask, but if people are listening and go, well, what does patience mean, you know, in regards to career development? But I'm just curious from the athletes or the businesses you worked with, because what you just really quick, I'm having a time out. What I've admired and bearing in mind, Martin and I haven't spoken for a long time. On LinkedIn, he's been so consistent. You've shared your fitness, your running. You sh- and, and what I've also admired is the influence you have in the Manchester area in particular, of how you've helped businesses. So I'm just curious from that patience period, it could be your personal development or business development, reflecting now, how has it really supported you? I'm curious now too. Well, yeah, you'll know Ed, from my first book that what I, I learned early on in my career was the power of persistence and you know coupled with persistence that you really need to be persistent is you need to be patient because if you're not what will happen is you start looking for something else and when results don't come your way fast enough it's very easy to divert your attention or 
something else will divert your attention because of the noisy world we live in. There's always something shinier around the corner trying to grab your attention, whether that's another job, another career, a, you know, a purchase, whatever it is. So for me, I think with age as well, life teaches you patience. Now, I can say that I've had some tough lessons around patience where my expectations have just not been met so many times early on in my career that the disappointment taught me the hard way. And But what I can say, absolutely, the things that take you longer to achieve or acquire, I've found that you do, I, I do, um, enjoy and get a more fulfilling feeling from those things because I've been patient and it's taken me a long time. But sometimes, and I always quote the Steve Jobs uh, speech, which he gave where he talked about connecting the dots. And it's really difficult to connect the dots looking forwards. But when you look back, they do tend to make sense. And so for me, I can look back on my career now and be really pleased that I've been patient and persistent enough to follow one path because I look back now and I can see where all the dots connected. But what I can say is if I go back in time to when I was in the moment, looking forward at times, I was frustrated and, you know, I wasn't feeling patient, for example. I couldn't see the dots connecting. And that's the one thing that, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but you can only see it looking backwards, right? So there's other things then like having trust, and having faith and having the right people around you. Um, but also the self-coaching bit has been really key to that because something I think is really, really important is listening to your own intuition and learning to just drown out the noise. And now there's much more noise in the world, like you say. There's so many different mediums and places we, we can get information. To, to trying to take, you know, trying to advise us or give us clues or ideas to go in certain ways it can be very easy to be knocked off your own path and I think learning to listen to your own intuition something that I've learned as a coach and something I believe as a coach when I start engaging with new clients is that all the answers we need are within but you've got to learn to be able to pull them out wow I really connect to what you just said because this is so true everybody when I met Martin I knew he would be episode 10 and I just started my podcast show. And honestly, hitting episode 10 was a huge milestone because I'm like, my mentor said you need one a week. And it was near Martin's period. When I met him. I had to be so consistent. And now 300 on, you know, I'm connecting the dots when you were saying that of, you know, that I, I call it and I'm curious of your point. You said persistence, but how important is that self-trust in your ability in particular when you're going that unknown road? in the direction you're going. I love your thoughts on that. Before we talk to today's podcast topic, but reflecting, how has self-trust supported your own self-coaching? Well, it's underpinned everything, I think. And I can always go back to a moment, Ed. And look, you, you know, for you doing 300 episodes, you'll certainly resonate with this because you'll have had to go through a similar process yourself. There'll have been times where you're thinking, I'm not getting enough traction or getting the results or is this working? And just like me, I think any... Any long, worthy goal, you know, anyone is going to go on that emotional roller coaster. But I can go back to one of the first coaching courses I went on and I looked around the room and everyone in that room wanted to be a professional coach and everybody wanted, you know, a similar path. But I think the presenter said something on that day of, you know, something about 
only 10% of the people. The stats show that only 10% of the people in this room will complete this diploma, go on to use it professionally. And I found, and I just remember making a promise to myself and I, I wrote it down as a mantra and it was, whatever happens, no matter what, I am going to do this. And and that, in the hardest times, that stuck with me. So in the times where I didn't get the results or wanted to quit, that stuck with me. But you mentioned like the personal things. That's also stuck with me on the personal pursuits as well, whether that is fitness. You know, that's been fitness. I've been, I've kept fit since I was all my life, basically, from leaving school to them, you know, when you're not having to do it as a, as an activity twice a week to then go into the gym, joining a gym before those gym chains, then it was a very expensive actually. Um, but kept that up as a habit. It was, and I look back and I think actually, you know, though it's that persistence and those things do become habits eventually, you know, where like that self, the self-trust you talk about that starts initially with a decision and a you know that decision to believe in yourself and then there's lots of things that influence it but over time i think those decisions become habits and once they become a habit sometimes it's harder to not do it than it is to do it so analyzing your habits and deciding what are the most important fundamental habits that are going to get me from a to b then that's a massive part of the journey Absolutely. Just to be clear with this all relates to his first book, Optimizing Yourself. Like seriously, when I met Martin, I bought the book and that bit there is so relevant in there. But I want to talk about his second book. But today's talk was about his third book, but I've missed one. But the we before we went on air, I said we've got to talk about because you said your second book was about leadership. And again, the last 300 podcasts I've done, there's been that theme of how leadership has influenced somebody's career. And I don't mean that they're a manager or they're in a position, have a title. It's, it's internal in how they show up and how they influence others around them. It doesn't mean they're in a team, but even the family environment too. And it's just, a, I'm at that stage of my career now, to be honest, Martin, where leadership's a topic that's really influencing my development now and sort of taking ownership of this topic to thrive. Like, it's a bit, bit of a, I'm going on a tangent, but... You're going to think I'm crazy at what I'm about to share, but I think it's important. When I was younger, when people playing Action Man toys and all that, my my favourite thing I was fascinated with was the Battle of Waterloo with Napoleon and Wellington. It sounds crazy, but I just found this period of history so interesting of two leaders because Napoleon was really small, like very, he's like one of the smallest, you know, generals or like not emperors, I should say, but he influenced so many people in France, you know. And um, I know you're smiling, but... When I learned about Wellington style compared to Napoleon's, it got me really curious. And it's only now where, it, you know, I know we're talking about war. It's not the greatest topic of getting inspiring leaders, but I was more curious of how they influence their people to a certain cause. I'm just curious of how leadership has influenced your development, but most importantly, inspired you to write a book about this topic as well, which I can't wait to read, by the way. So... When I first started my business, I started working with, and I love, I love, you know, the story you said, like about leaders and being in. You, know, you were curious. You were curious about what is it about those leaders that have that influence? Like I say, you know, that's where all this, all knowledge and learning begins with that curiosity. 
for me, when I started my career and started my business, I was predominantly working with individuals. And and after a short amount of time, that started to progress to teams. You know, I'd work with an individual. The individual said, look, that's great. You've helped me. Can you can you come and do something with my team? And I started developing my experience there. And then what I, I kept coming up against this theme of leadership of every team and organization I started to work with, how pivotal the leadership was. Now, it never really fascinated me or I wasn't particularly curious about leadership per se at that stage. But when I started coming up against it more, I started to become interested. And then I started to really learn about it because my clients needed help there and wanted that support. And so I started teaching more of what I'd learned. And eventually, you know, with the more research, I went on a five-year journey of researching what do the best leaders in the world do, you know, from sport, from business. Like the third book I talked about at that point, the Navy SEALs, you know, I know you you wanted to ask me something about that. What is it these, you know, great leaders around the world, what do they do to influence people? And back to your point around how it's influenced me, the one thing that I discovered, the thing I discovered, which almost is a strap line and is a theme running through the whole book is I found that leadership is not a position. It's a mindset. And that bit really intrigued me because prior to that, and like a lot of people, I thought the misconception or the, the conception I had around leadership was that, you know, it's somebody who's in charge, the, the manager, they're the making decisions, they're telling you what to do, rather than somebody that has influence. And it was less about position and title and more about a mentality. And something which actually anybody, once we... Once you learn what those fundamentals are, you learn those key thoughts and behaviors, anyone can have influence on people. In fact, we all have influence on everyone. And so I remember the first conference, I went and shared these ideas and I said, hands up in the room for for all the leaders in this room today. And there was about 150 people there. Hands up, can all the leaders just raise their hands? And, you know, people were a little bit tentative, but eventually I got 10% of the room to put the hands up and then I said to them right um how many lead how many hands do you think I wanted to see go up and people said all of them and and they sort of got where I was going with my message is that I wasn't looking for the the 10 percent of the room that had a title or whatever level they were at within the organization I wanted each person to see that actually my message was that everyone there has an influence on their peers. Everyone there goes home away from their their work peers and has an influence on their family and their friends. So in in our own way, we're all leading people, not from a position of role or title, but from a position of just human behavior. And when you start to understand the fundamentals of how to do that in a positive way, then you can start to develop those leadership capabilities and have more influence. And so, so then I, you know, I wrote a book about all of that, all of that learning, you know, of how people can just anybody, regardless of experience or title, can adopt these lessons and have more positive influence in the world. I'm putting you on the spot now, but what would you say relating to that book and all the lessons you've learned during that five-year period? What is that one quality? that stood out consistently from a pattern behavior that made them a more effective leader? That's a great question that Ed, and, and very difficult because there's, there's so many to answer just pinpoint one, 
if I had to, I would say a I would you could call this emotional intelligence or self-awareness. But the ability to actually just be aware, right? That understanding of yourself and others. And the one thing it's very interesting this because I use a personality profiling tool in my work with clients. And there's a lot of misconceptions around that as well, around these are the the behaviors or the habits of great leaders and whether they're very assertive or driven or they're very, you know, gregarious in their style or however, you know, there's, there's perceptions that we have around what makes a great leader. What I've found is the most important quality, regardless of whatever personality style you are, is authenticity. That's the most important that anybody, I've seen great leaders in all industries now, because I've had a lot of experience working with them, that get great results by being authentic, not by trying to be something else. And that was one of the things I wanted to capture in my book, because I think a lot of people read, they see somebody and they go, that sports leader or this general or this business leader, I want to be like them. They've been successful. I must follow that path and do the same thing. And actually, it jars with their own personality traits. And then they're trying to be something they're not. So if I had to, I would say, now, to be authentic, there has to be a degree of that self-awareness and emotional intelligence. So the word I would use is authenticity. And I think that's the most important. Right, I'm... I'm going to give you an example of what you've just said, because I think that's vital. Going back to, again, my inspiration of Napoleon in particular, because I'm quite small. And I went, well, he's a small guy. I'm a small guy. And he's leading thousands of people. Now, if you don't know about Napoleon, he actually started. He's got, well, he's very got He's got short temper. So I was not going to model that for starters and be that type. I'm just giving you a case. So what do you relate to this? Because I, I think it would make it more fun listening experience. But what I did admire, I don't know if you know this, Martin, but he actually started with the um, the artillery. When he first ever started in the French army, the artillery, meaning these big cannons. And it was the most hardest job because you have to move these massive cannons in positions. And actually, it's the cannons. If you get the cannons right against the opposition, like chess, you know, basically, he could dictate the, the game plan to win the battle. And wherever he started, he always made sure he had a top, general with the cannons when he was leading because he's been in those shoes he's been in the mud and that's how he won in Russia and and in, most importantly in France but I'm just what I admire from Napoleon was he's willing to get his hands dirty in the hardest unit which then got him the respect with the men later on down the line of his military career so but that's what I've learned from him it was certainly not as I said right at the beginning not his um his attitude of how he communicate, because again, he was very sharp. He he lost his um, emotions very quickly if something didn't go his way. So I'm giving you one example, but is that a good example that you can tell I'm wrong here, but I'm always authentic. So I'm actually more quieter. I'm more listen more now than when I am in team environments. But what I do, what I do do is make sure I get my hands dirty, not just delegate and walk away. I'm like, if I say an idea, I want to make sure I you know, with a team, actually get my hands dirty in the task itself. So 
again, I love your point of view, Martin, of what I've just said as an example of, because I'm a big believer it's good to model, but not like copy. Um, so I've just, again, this is sort of a freestyle question of what I've said. You can say I'm right or wrong, or I'm just curious of what I've said from a leadership standpoint. Okay. Yep. Well, what you're talking about, the word I would use to describe that, which again features as what, what I said, it's a difficult question to answer to pinpoint one thing because I found lots of different patterns. The word I would use to describe what you're talking about is a humility and a humility to not think that, you know, I'm above anybody, a humility to not think that I'm smart or I have all the answers. And that humility then drives lots of other healthy leadership behaviors such as willing to get stuck in and and lead by example and and sh you know and get my hands dirty as you said willing to do you know willing to to look at certain roles or jobs that and not think i'm beyond them right and that builds a trust with people okay but humility as well sometimes to let go of control of something and actually know that somebody else is better suited for a particular job than I am, you know, and to have that humility to accept, firstly, to accept it and to see it and then to act upon it. So humility is really, really important because, yes, you, you know, you can only go so far alone. 100%. Look, I hope people are taking notes and enjoying this conversation. Now, I want to get to this third book because I came across it on Instagram. I was like, I've got to read this book with regards to the inner athlete. Now, again, when we last spoke, I didn't have many athletes on my podcast, but now I've interviewed a fair few. And I've always been curious of like, what's in between, you know, their mindset, their behaviours, their actions of how they reach the top. And reading your book, I really enjoyed it uh, a lot, particularly with regards to potential, like achieving our potential. So I'd love you to talk about your latest book, but also the first page basically of your book about your experience with the Navy SEALs with uh, your 23 minute plank, which ended up extending in time. I'm not going to give away any more of the story, but I love if you wouldn't mind sharing this Navy SEAL story to educate myself, but also the listeners of sometimes we don't, you know, push ourselves. You call it the 20 X, um, you know, principle in a way from that first story of like, we think we're, finish but actually there's a lot more in the tank um relating to that plank story so the mic's yours but this navy steel story is one of my favorites in the book so mike's yours martin okay yeah so um you know like i said in in the research for just my work books i was studying like what is it the greatest teams in the world do what do great leaders do and i came across this guy that he he was um a a general in the Navy SEALs for uh, 10, 11 years, you know, so he's a commander in the Navy SEALs for about 11 years. And eventually he, he was brilliant at training high performance teams within the SEALs. Now the Navy SEALs are widely regarded as the mentally and physically toughest group of people on the planet, you know, and, and it's widely known as well that their methods for training and equipping their people are extreme and extremely difficult and tough and, um, and they they got this commander to set up an academy to train people to improve the acceptance rate into the SEALs. What they found is that 90% of all the people that applied to go into the Navy SEALs failed. They failed the, the training. 
because it was so difficult. So he has a reputation of developing really high performance in the SEALs over a long period of time. He was recruited to build an academy to put people through before they actually did the official Navy SEALs training. And every person that went through his training, 90% of them completed the Navy SEALs training. So he went, they went from a 90% failure rate to a 90% success rate. And so I got the opportunity to go and, you know, go on one of these three-day programs. Now, it was a more condensed version of the one they run officially for the SEALs. And it was more about the leadership insights. And so I didn't know what to expect. Now, the first thing they did on day, the morning of day one, well, the first thing that really struck me about this commander was he was the opposite of what I perceived, what I expected to find. You know, this very intimidating, large, imposing, you know, ridiculously tough man I expected to see in front of me. And he was quite quiet and reserved and humble, but he had this this aura, this steely energy about him that I, I just had not really come across before. And so that took me by surprise. But the first, pretty much the first thing they had us do was they marched us out into the 36 degree sunshine in San Diego. And they explained the, this 20x philosophy to us where they believe that everybody has 20 times more potential than they think they do, that we are capable of approximately 20 times more than we would give ourselves credit for. And the, the way they demonstrate that too is through physical challenge. So we were told to assume the press-up position and just hold it as a plank. Uh, now you could choose that one on your hands or you could go on your elbows. I chose the press-up position as a plank. And then they started asking for people to, you know, with this 20x theory in mind, put a time on the clock. And for some reason, someone, you know, of course, people try and outdo each other. And we ended up with 23 minutes on the clock. And the rule was that you you could move around, you could, you know, lift one arm off the ground, lift your foot off the ground, but your knees were not allowed to hit the ground in that time. And if they did, they you would have a team of the SEALs onto you, you know, just make it probably making it more painful for the fact that you were, you know, giving up than it would be to carry on. And the first, I would say, 10 minutes, especially five minutes, like, you know, from, say, two minutes to seven minutes, that five-minute period was absolute agony hell. Um, and you can imagine the thoughts in my mind and the things I was saying to myself. What I found was after about 10 minutes, my mind had almost accepted that my body was going to do this. And it started to go quiet. And I found myself getting into this meditative, like flow state. My mind was clear. And the second half of that, the, you know, the second sort of 10 to 13 minutes were easier than the first 10. Physically, they should be tougher, but mentally, it, I found it easier. And then we got to 23 minutes and we were all ready to just collapse on the ground. And then he told us, in fact, We've done 23. Now we're going to prove how, how more capable we are and we're going to go to 30. And and, and that was a, another obstacle we had to get over in our mind. And it wasn't the physical challenge of that. It was the mental challenge of almost anticipating this sense of relief and then be, it being pulled away from us 
and say, no, actually, you're going to have to go even more. And so that took a couple of minutes to adjust. And then again, five minutes until, you know, the uh, 30 minute mark. And after that, the sense of euphoria and confidence that we got from that. I remember thinking to myself after that, I'm going to be okay here. I'm, I'm going to be okay because I don't think there's going to be anything that I have to overcome during these three days that was harder than that. That is why I had to share the story because it's actually the 10 minute mark that got me so curious in the books. I'm like, whoa, okay. And for the listeners listening in, if you relate to this metaphor as well, like I know you did it real life, but for the listeners, if you use this as a metaphor, I always say, like you said, that two to five minutes, let's say you're applying for a job or anything, something you think challenging, we give up so too early and it's a sticking out, meaning that 10 minute mark uh, and, you know, hitting not just the target, but beyond the target. That's what I learned. That's how I pictured that story for my development. So reflecting now, Martin, how has that experience supported you in other walks of life? Like when things are tough, you go back to that life example to basically not quit. I'm just really curious on that side of things. Okay, great question. I think it didn't surprise me, but part of it, how much they focus on this surprised me of how much of everything they they teach and get people to do and achieve in the SEALs was underpinned by emotional control. And so what it taught me is that, you know, whenever we all face challenges and we have different personalities and ways of expressing our emotions but our emotions are triggered by certain events and it'll be different events for us all but just learning to some to separate our behavior from that emotion because emotion can be so powerful it can really drive us to take action and sometimes those actions aren't good for us they're maybe too premature they're too harsh you, you know we're too quick to react to something just learning to just pause and be able to disassociate from that initial powerful emotion and just either persist or be patient with something, I would say that has probably been my biggest takeaway from the experience of, you know, just learning to sometimes detangle your thought process and your behavior from your emotion. That is really, really powerful. And, you know, and there's so many applications of that in life because whether we like to admit it or not, and we all and some people like to believe they're more rational than others, we are all emotional creatures. And managing those emotions is a big, big, big part of achievement and getting to where we want and managing our lives in a happy and successful way. Right. God, this is why I love podcasting, because I think you're going to like this. I was lucky enough to have somebody called Dave Diggle, who actually works with the men Australian Wallabies team. And we talked about flow state on the podcast, which relates to the book as well, which we're going to touch on. But he said when he's working with athletes to, to trigger that flow state, it starts with real focus and then just focusing on the activity and eliminating those distractions. Just relating. He did give a little hint, but past that sort of 10 minute mark, when did flow state kick in where the mindset was settled? Like, again, I, I even my podcast, I try and get into a flow state. But when we first ever spoke, I never thought about flow state. I never thought about how we get in the flow. That's how we showcase our potential, showcase our true self and showcase our qualities and strengths. So, 
again, from that example, but also your career development, how has flow state influenced the way you work with your clients in general? Big question, I know, but you hinted it in that example with the Navy SEALs on the plank. Yeah, so, I, well, I think, you know, there's lots of lessons we can learn from that there. And the part with the Navy SEALs is that actually they, you know, they've put us in a situation where we, it's, you know, we have to survive, right? So they've put us in a very difficult, challenging situation. And we've got the support in the environment around us. So ultimately, they're not going to let us not get through that challenge. So that there's a lesson we can learn from that. What I would say is, how have I applied it? Well, I would say with experience and with practice, a lot of my activities, whether it's writing this podcast today, there's certain things that I do to set myself up to be in a flow state. One of those things, this is so relevant now, and I've been coaching a lot of clients on this for the last two to three years since COVID um, broke in 2020, and a lot more people are doing communication and work virtually, of having no distractions when you work virtually. So I turned my phone onto airplane mode prior to actually coming on a call with somebody because and that's my one of my triggers to get into, prepare my brain, we're going into flow state. So it's setting up your environment. And the Navy SEALs had an environment where, you know, we had a team of SEALs around us that were to keep us focused on, on track. And so the, the environment was designed to help you get through it. But when you're working on your own, and a lot of people are working from home, it's very important to set up your environment to help you, not to get in your way. And I think many people's environments get in their way. So I've learned to just put certain things in place or remove certain things, distractions mainly, to help me get there faster. Because I know that when I am there, like for this podcast or for coaching a client or running a team session or whatever it is, when I am there, I know I'm going to add more value. But I'm not going to add that value if my mind is being dragged onto distractions in my environment, whether it's my normally it's your phone pinging or something. You know, I'd, but I don't have any notifications on my phone. So the only thing that could happen really is that something would be triggered in my calendar or a phone call. I don't have any notifications for anything else. I hope people are taking tips. And thank you so much for sharing the flow state element. Now, the book. Like I've read it, The Inner Athlete. What inspired you to write this book? Like What was the purpose behind it? So the main driver for this was that I've been working in elite sport for coming up 15 years and studying it for, you know, 10 years longer than that. And I developed my own methodology, all of these ideas that I've been using with my sports clients. However, I've never documented them. So I've never, at, at that point, my two previous books were written to the end user could be anybody. And even though in the third book, The Inner Athlete, even though the book is aimed at athletes in particular and not just professional just anyone that's you know got an interest in being a recreational athlete these methods there that will apply to anybody so i've had a lot of people in business read the book but i wanted to document my sports methodology for the sports clients that you know there may be a lot of people that i don't get the opportunity to work with for whatever reason but there's something i can add value to them 
So there's a way I've documented all this that I've learned and I'm teaching and coaching other people. And it can be of use to somebody that I've never even met. And the thought of that for me was a really rewarding and fulfilling one. And, you know, since then I've had feedback from certain people that I've never met and they've read the book and they've taken ideas and they've used them and it's helped them. And that's a really nice feeling. And that's that was the reason for me to document these ideas in the book, but also knowing that, do you know what? There'll be people that aren't athletes, aren't interested in sport, but they'll get some value from it too in their own career because the like with all of my work and I found with all three books and everything that I've done so far in my career, the lessons are universal. We're human beings. It's human behavior. So they apply to us all. To be honest, the one element I love in the book, which goes in a lot more detail, it could be the podcast in itself, is how the brain works, like utilizing the brain to your advantage from an athlete standpoint, or I'd say business environment in having focus and flow states involved to everybody. If you don't mind, I want to give a little bit of a case study from an athlete standpoint, because again, as you could probably imagine, Martin, I get a lot of how to find your dream career in sports. I do believe in those words, but it's really... I would say this, and I'm being so this is probably one of the best case studies I've seen in a book where somebody actually managed to actually pursue their dream of competing at the Paralympics. I'm giving you a little trick of who it is, but could you just give a little case to Carly? Because honestly, every this story relates to all the themes we've discussed in this conversation, being persistent, believing in yourself. And then, you know, this story is just amazing. But what I admire the most is she actually achieved her dream and what she wanted to achieve. Um, and it all was inspired by the 2012 Paralympics and Olympic Games back in London. So could you just share this little case study? Because there's so many learning lessons that I know the listener will take, but also be inspired too. Yeah. OK, so I'll try and keep this one as brief as I can, sure. because <laughs> I could I could I could spend an hour or two talking about this story. Essentially. If we go back to London 2012, you know, for me, it was an incredible time, um, an incredible summer here in England where everyone was just, everyone seemed to be inspired by the Olympics and following that, the Paralympics. And I was going into workplaces. Now I have a bias because I'm interested in sport. And people just seemed to, even the BBC breakfast had become the BBC Olympic breakfast. And instead of talking about all the issues that were going on in the world, they started today talking about how many gold medals um, Great Britain had won at the Olympics. And it was just, you know, it felt like a really, really sort of uplifting summer. And somebody who also found it inspiring was a girl called Carly Tate, who I later become to know. What happened was Carly... Um, she was born with a condition called cerebral palsy. But in the 80s, they didn't really, the doctors didn't know much about this condition when Carly was born. And so her parents didn't even find out that she had cerebral palsy until a doctor told um, them when she was five. So Carly went to a normal mainstream school. She was the only disabled girl in her class. And as a result, she got, you know, different treatment and challenging treatment at times, especially when it came to things like PE and sports. She was always picked last, for example. She found it very difficult, very, very challenging, very uninspiring. And so she built lots of beliefs about her own capabilities in sport. And as soon as she left school, she couldn't wait to just never have to do any sport or exercise ever again. Now, at this point of 2012, she was 25 and she was coming into work. She worked for a marketing company and she was coming into work every day. And she was intrigued and also surprised of how 
how inspired everybody was by the 2012 Olympics. And then when that finished, equally how inspired people were by the Paralympics. She didn't even realise it was as big as it was. And I think, you know, 2012 really put Paralympics on the map, but it was incredible. It drew incredible interest from the country. And, um, and Carly was so intrigued that she thought to herself, maybe it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get to the London Stadium and see an event. And the only ticket she could get was to the closing ceremony, which were £500 each. And she managed to convince her best friend to part the money up, put the money on a credit card. They both got a ticket. Uh, they went down to the, the closing ceremony. And there, one of the first races she witnessed was the 100-metre wheelchair race. And she found out that half of the lineup also had cerebral palsy. And this blew her mind because never once at any point in her life had she ever seen an example or thought it would be possible to, you know, for somebody with her condition to compete at that level. And once she saw other people doing it, after a short time, she turned around to her best friend and she said to her best friend, she said, why can't I do that? And of course, then as best friends do, you know, and they know you so well, best friends are super honest. And a best friend said, well, Carly, you know, you you do like a bit of a party. You do smoke cigarettes and, you know, you don't exactly live the life of an athlete. So there's some pretty strong reasons as to why you can't be a professional athlete, you know. And so Carly went back to enjoying her moment but upon leaving the stadium that day, she turned to her best friend and said, look, you may laugh. And this sounds like a really flippant remark that we, we all get inspired and we make some comments at times and don't follow it up. And she said, you may laugh, but she won't, you won't laugh in four years time when I'm lining up in the final of the Paralympic Games at Rio de Janeiro. And that's what that was the pursuit that Carly took after that. She she returned to Manchester. She looked up wheelchair racing coaches online and fortunately fortuitously for Carly there was one down the road at Stockport Harriers just a mile or two down the road from where she worked and she went along on a Tuesday evening um, and I could go into all of the detail of how difficult it was for her but yeah no the only thing the only thing I want to touch on the details sorry to interrupt is the importance of faith because like I'm going to short this up because this could be in the whole. I love you, to, and it's in your optimistic. Um, optimize yourself too about the spirituality of our way we show up. Can we just talk about the faith element? Because I'm going to go near the ending of this story. You got to get the book, but she wasn't actually picked for Rio. And at the end of the day, there was this bonus spot, and she was in. Now, I just want to talk about the faith element throughout the last five year period. Uh, and everybody else, get the book. Martin, the mic's yours. I, I like I like that take, Ed. That's a good one. Um, so what was unique about Carly's story was that, you know, everybody I'm sure listening will understand the power of goals or thought, or hopefully thought about goals, of having a, a picture of something in the future that you want to work towards that's inspiring for you, that's helping to motivate your action move towards it. For Carly, that was a unique experience because when she was at the closing ceremony, she almost had a picture of it was such a vivid experience for her that ignited all of her senses that it struck such a chord. She had a vision, a, a really clear, vivid picture of what four years away would look like for her. 
And that was so inspiring that it compelled her to do everything, to keep going. And, and eventually, you know, found me. We started working together. I bought into her story. I wanted to support her along the way. And every time we would meet and she would face some new challenge, and there were so many challenges and setbacks she faced, but every time I would just take her back to and we'd talk about, just think about that start line in Rio, imagining you're there, and just, just thinking about that in detail. And that helps to create the faith and the belief, right? That we plant that seed in our subconscious mind and we plant it so often. And when we do something like that and it's inspiring, you know, and it ignites our senses, it's more powerful. And therefore, it's easier to stay focused, to stay on track. So it's a real reminder of the power of having a vision, of having a compelling goal, because ultimately that is what drives our behavior. That is what causes us to discipline ourselves to either do or do not do things in the present moment, to sacrifice things, to make things happen in the future which all worthy goals will require. Right, I'm going to put you on the spot now, reflecting, one, how proud are you that she actually made it, but actually when you were coaching her, did you have that doubt or you just really bought into that vision too? Because when we're coaching, we don't know the outcome, but we're, as a coach, you're you know trying to support to achieve that outcome. And this is more from a coaching perspective. How did you stay focused? But again, going back to my original question, how proud are you? reflecting from that Carly story? Oh, I mean, Ed, honestly, incredibly proud, you know, that I got to share that journey with her in such a personal capacity. You know, it's a, I've still not come across a story like that in sport to date. So something so unique, special, so inspiring. I know how many people that her story is inspired. So, and I know what she went through to get there. So incredibly proud and privileged to go on that journey with her. And I think that, you know, the important part of the question is I was always talking about keeping the faith and the belief in that vision, but never were we putting pressure on the things that we couldn't control or I didn't want to put pressure on thing, on outcomes for Carly that she couldn't control. So even though I, I, I encouraged her to dream, we also said we just focused on the process and just doing what she could. But I believe you need both because if you don't have the end vision and you don't have that dream to believe in and have faith in, then it's very difficult sometimes to motivate yourself to do the hard work in the present. So we talked about that, but then we would talk about, right, so for the next two weeks, what are you going to do? You know, so we use the vision to get focused and then talk about, right, now what are you going to do? And ultimately, when we got to the end and we thought she wasn't going to make it there, I was still incredibly proud of what she'd done. Because, by the way, along the way, Ed, she had won two silver medals at the European Championships. You know, she had already inspired everybody she she also had her face i remember walking into a co-op who sponsored her and seeing her face on a billboard in a co-op store and and seeing her face on itv on adverts and you know so she'd already achieved so much before then that, that i was already incredibly proud and that was just the cherry on the cake you know whether it happened or not and it, unfortunately it did so that's even more amazing 
but we focused on the process. And I think that's really important for people to hear too. 100%. That's why I had to share this story in the podcast, because if people want to achieve whatever their dream job means to them, Martin's just giving you the components to do that. It's just in a different environment. And, and that's the key thing. But look, Martin, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I can't believe we had to wait seven years, but sometimes things happen for a reason. But reflecting, what have you really enjoyed from your sort of coaching career journey from the last 14 years? Like, what have you enjoyed the most looking back? Always stayed the same, I think, for me, the, the answer to this question. Ed, and it's just working with people who I enjoy working with you know people I, I i want to work with i like them i build a relationship i build trust and i want to see them succeed and when they succeed i feel like i'm succeeding and it's fulfilling for me and so that's always been at the heart of all the work that i do and hopefully it will always be that way because i think once you lose that in my role then really you shouldn't be doing it anymore 100% agree with that it's all about the people but you've got to have the enjoyment while you're doing it Look, as always, I like to finish with an inspirational question. Out of interest, like what three tips would you give to the listeners to improve their communication skills? Like what would they be? We've spoken, you've given so much case studies, but examples through your books, through your own experiences. But one thing I've learned from you seven years on is how you keep honing those communication methods. So again, go back to my question, like what three tips would you give to listeners to improve their communication skills straight after listening to this podcast? What would it be? Right. It's a very specific question. I think I'd, I'd, I'd like to think now to give them some things that they could actually do that are practical. So I think number one, sharpen your listening skills. Look into, read upon, find out what, you know, all about listening, but just practice the habit of listening. That would be number one. Number two, as a, pra a practical tool and tip that somebody could do, is I'd say complete a psychometric profile. I use it, something called DISC. Complete a DISC profile and learn more about yourself, about your style and your strengths and your weaknesses. That's very, you know, a very handy tool when it comes to communication because it also teaches you about how to improve your communication with different styles to yourself. And number three, I would say have a di have a diverse group of people around you. So whether that is the books you read, the podcasts you listen to, the people you spend time with, have some diversity in there so you get a a wider, a more, you know, um, just a greater collection of different thoughts and ideas and ways of thinking and viewing the world. And that, for me, was that was the driver why I wanted to go travelling at a young age. I wanted to go and experience that for myself. So I, they're my three practical tips that I hope you use as your listeners um, will be able to go and practice. Absolutely and grateful. And I couldn't agree with the first one with us to listening it's like I've had to do the last seven years with the podcast but actually the final one which is brilliant because I've learned this without a doubt understanding different cultures within sport is massive and it relates to what you said about you know communicating with different people from different industries but different cultures you actually become a better communicator so I hope the listeners put those into action but out of interest Martin how can people interact with you online where are the best places to go 
probably most active place, Ed, is LinkedIn. So just search me on LinkedIn and send me a request if you want. Um, we can connect on there. You can also connect with me on Twitter. Just, again, search for my name, Martin Robert Hall. You'll find me on Twitter. And they're, they're probably the two most active platforms. That is great. To all the listeners listening in, all those links will be on my website with regards to this podcast and, of course, the links to your three books. Martin, it's been such a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Honestly, it's been a pleasure. And it's so nice to reconnect after all this time. I have to say I got a massive smile on my face because this reminds me of why I enjoy podcasting so much. I have to say, like, listening and learning from Martin, the one mistake I have done, and I have to put my hand up because I'm all about networking as a skill and having the ability to keep in touch with people is so important. So on that side, I like to be authentic. I will not make that same mistake again, but it has taught me one thing of the benefit of it is during the podcast, we both learned from each other from the period we haven't been in contact. And honestly, on LinkedIn, I've always admired Martin's consistency. So relating today's podcast, I hope you learned so much from different topics, from leadership, being authentic, the ability relating to Martin's book to be a better communicator. Now he's done three books. He's been a better writer, a better communicator. And the big thing that hit me from a learning aspect as a huge reminder is that point of persistence and being patient like he said at times in this fast-paced world with information social media and just how things are so fast-paced we expect things to be fast but in reality of our growth it does take time and believe me on this i've experienced that like i have to be so truthful even with all the podcasts i've done and how many years i've been doing this for eight years I feel like I'm just starting. Um, but without a doubt, it's those milestones of success or making mistakes that have been massive learning lessons. That's where growth and in particular that emotional intelligence of reflection, which is key. And I just want to remind you that as a way of like reminding yourself that this is part of the process. And I think that's what I enjoyed the most with the conversation with Martin is you know, we forget our own development at time. And even going back to the podcast at the beginning of, you know, the first question I sort of asked him about his personal growth is the ability to keep self-coaching, like coaching himself on certain aspects. And just to highlight one point, which was really important to share and recap is putting things on paper and then using that as a review system. Like when you like write things down, it actually leads to action more quicker than just leaving it in the mind thinking about it so you can tell how much i've enjoyed this but i hope it's been helpful to you but finally i just want to emphasize with regards to martin's latest third book the inner athlete and to carly's story like when i read this book and learned about carly's like whole journey being a elite athlete it just reminded me what pursuing a dream is all about and this is one of my benchmark stories I'll relate to with regards to my personal growth because I find marketing is so important in today's world, but sometimes it can be diluted in regards to what we're trying to achieve, but always having those aspirations are key and vital. And Carly's story inspired me that anything's possible, but it takes time. It took her from the Paralympic Games 
from London sitting out to the stands, then getting to Rio, there's a lot of ups and downs about the process and there's more detail in the book. But relating to your journey, I hope it reminds you that whatever you're trying to achieve, whatever job, whatever industry you want to work in the sports industry is possible. But with having all those principles in place, discipline, persistence, focus and that self-belief, which is vital. So I'm really curious what your biggest takeaway from this podcast is and how you're going to apply it to your sports career development right now. Not tomorrow, not a bit later, right now. And put that into practice now and make it happen. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my special guest. Martin said, leadership is not a position, it's a mindset.